Father God, we, we thank you for bringing us to this place this evening. Um, we thank you that you have poured out so many graces on us today. The fact that we woke up in relationship with you, that you've called us, that you have saved us. And Father, it is your, um, your goal that every Sunday as we gather under your word that your church will be built up, and that is my prayer. Father, this evening we're going to do something that seems crazy in the world. We are looking at a thousand, multiple thousand-year-old document, and we are saying that it is your word and that it has the power to transform lives. And so, Father God, we know that we can only do this if your Holy Spirit is with us. Would you pour out your spirit upon this place? May we behold the glory of your gospel, and may we leave changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. If you open a Bible, I would recommend it. You shouldn't have to turn far. It's the first book in Genesis. And then 15, if you just count to 15 real quick, you're there. So you're not, it's on page 15. Chapter 15 on page 15 of my Bible. Well, um, tonight we're continuing my little study, a journey through the story of Abraham. Abram at this time, there's an already not yet element to Abram. He is Abraham as we know him, but now he's Abram. So give me some grace if he goes back and forth. So long as we are in the story of Abram, I keep trying to get Jonathan to have us do Father Abraham congregationally. So you can put that out there. We'll have a conversation about next time. So you can look forward to that next time I preach, if they let me. So we saw a month ago, if you're here with us, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God has made some incredible promises to Abram. He promised that, that he would give Abram and his wife, Sarah, a few blessings. They would have a nation. They would become a people. They would be a blessing, and their kings would come from them. It's an absolutely incredible promise. It's especially incredible because at this time, Abram and his wife lack all of these things. They do not have a home. God calls them to leave their home, and Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. But God was going to provide Abram with a kingdom. That was the idea we looked at last time, through which all of the world would be blessed. Now, the narrative takes a very interesting turn because on the heels of this great promise, nothing really happens. So God does not immediately start fulfilling his promise, but waits. Time passes. The Lord speaks to them on occasion, but he does not start immediately fulfilling these promises. They're in the land, but they're sojourners. They have people who could inherit these promises, but they're distant relatives they don't have a child yet. Abram and Sarah are waiting, but they wait a long time. And then finally, in chapter 15, the Lord responds. Please follow along with me as I read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what would you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am, the Lord, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. 
But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these things, cut them in half, and laid each of them over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord. So the main thrust of this text, if you're paying attention, is an issue of assurance. Can Abram know for certain that God will fulfill his promises. In particular, it's focusing on whether or not the Lord will give Abram an offspring and will give his offspring a land. And if you're paying attention, those two issues really divide the text and it breaks up really nicely for us. In verses one through six, Abram lacks or laments the lack of a biological heir, someone who can inherit all of his property. And then verses seven through 21, he focuses on whether or not he can be sure that his descendants will have this land of Canaan that God has promised to him. So that's going to break our text in half for us. Verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 21 on those two ideas. But there's a really important question you need to ask. Why is God delaying? Why does he make this promise and then wait? I think this is connected to the main idea. I'm gonna, if, if, you have, if you're ever taking notes and you want one thing to take away with or an idea to kick around in your head, here's what I think the main idea is. It might not be clear at first, but I think we'll come around to it. Here's what it is. In, in God delaying, God delays in fulfilling his promises to reveal Abram's need and our need for three things, faith, righteousness, and representation to receive God's blessing. It's a mouthful, but here's this again. God delays in fulfilling his promises to reveal Abram's need. Abram has this need, and it's the same need that we have. And there are three things that might not hit you at first, but they're going to become very important. It's faith, righteousness, and representation. And that's how Abram, and that's how you and I receive God's blessings. Now, these are the blessings we're talking about from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So I'm not going to get too much into that. I preached on it last time. So I'd recommend going back into that if you want to dive into those. But because this text is also about how we can receive God's blessing, it becomes of great importance to us, right? Because God has made covenant blessings available to every person in this room. 
In this text, you can see how these things can be made available for you. So let's start by looking at the first part of our passage, verses 1 through 6. And again, this section is looking at God confirming his promise to give Abram descendants. Abram opens our chapter in trouble. If you go back to the previous chapter, he just finished annoying the kings of Canaan. First, he goes on a little raiding party and saves his nephew, Lot, and brings him back. And second, whenever he also saves a few other kings, he denies their tribute because he doesn't want to be indebted to them at all. And so that makes sense of God's opening statement if you look down in verse 1. So he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. You just made these Canaanite kings mad, so I'm going to protect you. And then second, your reward will be great. You don't have to depend upon these other kings. I am going to take care of you. But in verse 2, God speaks what's on, Abram speaks what's on his mind back to God. There's this little thing eating away at him. And it's that, what we talked about already, God has not started fulfilling his promises to Abram. And in verse 2, you see, as we read earlier, he points out that he doesn't have an heir. The only heir that he has, he lists, and that's a distant relative who's going to end up with all of his things. He takes this opportunity for God to give him this blessing to remind him of the fact that he has not returned and been faithful to Abram. Now, it's really easy for us to to relate to Abram in his current situation, isn't it? What naturally starts to brew in our hearts when God gives us promises or he speaks his word to us and it doesn't align with what's happening in our lives? Doubt. Think about that last unanswered prayer request or that last phone call. Or think about that broken relationship, that diagnosis. When providence didn't seem to go your way, God's word might say one thing, but then your life seems to say something much more concrete and very different. The Lord does not flinch, though, at this, but gives Abram another promise. He leads him outside and tells him to look at the stars. And as he's looking at him, he says, so shall your offspring be. You will have offspring, Abram. You will have a son. And when I'm done with you, you will not even be able to count them. So this is an important question, and we're going to take a stop here for a second. How much weight do you put on God's words? Whenever God says something to you, how much gravity do you naturally place on it? And I would bet, not because of anything negative in us, but just because of how we're creative, I just think that a lot of us, me included, do not put enough weight on God's words. The God who speaks who gives us his Bible, is an eternal God. He is infinite. He is independent, who knows all things and can do all things. He is perfectly wise. He is perfectly good. Nothing limits his hands and nothing stops him. And everything that he says comes true. So when God tells Abram, I'm going to give you as many offspring as the stars, remember who is speaking. Whatever God says is true because of who he is. Now let's take another, let's go deeper into that a little bit. Theologians talk about the fact that God in his essence, if you get to God in, his, in, in who he is purely, that he is actually unknowable because of him dwelling in eternity. So even what we have in the Bible is something that is mediated because we don't have pure access to God. We have something that gives us 
words about him. But this doesn't mean that we don't have confidence in God. Because of God's simple and unified nature, everything that God says and everything that God does naturally corresponds to who he is in his essence. So even while we don't have access to God in his essence, because that would kill all of us instantly, we have access and true knowledge of who he is because of two things, what he says and what he does. For God to say anything, think about this, for God to make any statement is for the eternal God of all creation to bind himself to human words. He does not contradict himself. He does not let his words fail. He will never forget a word which he has spoken. When God speaks, they become imperatives for him. He has to do it. Why? For his own glory, his own character demands it. So when God makes a statement, since there's no falsehood in God, it reflects his pure character and perfect essence. Thus, it's going to happen. God is outside of time but he's also in time. He is everywhere and knows everything. Promises from God are statements of certainty. When God talks about the future, for us, it is history. Here's a few quotes from scripture. Isaiah 48, you guys know these very well, and that's 40 colon eight. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of, the word of our God will what? Stand forever. And then go to the New Testament, Matthew 8, um, 5, 18. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest line in your Bible will pass away until it is all accomplished. Friends, do you understand the gravity that is behind God's word? Once God has spoken anything, he is binding himself to it. So if, if, you, if we come back to that, now that we have a, a big view of who God is, go, go back to my question. How much weight do you put on God's words? Because if you have a low view of God's words, if you say that it can contain errors or it doesn't always speak truthfully about what it's trying to communicate, even if you struggle to trust the truthfulness of it, if you don't delight in its promises, if you don't weigh the warnings, if you do not believe it's gospel, you're not just disparaging an old book, but you're actually making statements against the character and essence of God himself. It's heavy things. I was actually in kids' worship this morning, and we're going through our New City Catechism. We were talking about the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord and God in vain. We speak true things about God to give him reverence. The word of God is God's word period. Now back to our story. So God takes Abram outside to reaffirm his promise that Abram will have a son, right? And then in the middle of this story, one of the most glorious sentences is penned. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So our sentence breaks down into two parts. You have on the one side, Abram's belief and the second part, you have this idea of something being counted to him as righteousness. Let's look at the first part real quick. So Abram believes the Lord. Now it's important also, I have a few things I want to get across tonight. I want to restore the weightiness of the word belief. Because we're not talking about just believing in Santa Claus or reindeer. I actually didn't know that reindeer actually existed. And so 
that was a wake-up call for me. Not the Rudolph ones, but we're not talking about just believing in Santa, and we're not talking about necessarily a leap of faith. Look down at verse 8. Look at this. This is important. But he said, how am I to know? Then later, what does God respond with in verse 13? Know for certain. I want you to stare at those for a few seconds, even if you can put it up on the screen. There you go. The next time that someone comes up to you and says that Christians don't care about truth or just believe in this airless faith, I want you to stare at that. Because whenever God picked out Abram, he wasn't just picking the most gullible person in the ancient Near East who would leave everything that he had to go pursue some fantasies. I want us to give, let's look at verse 13 again. It's really important even to see this, is that underneath that idea of no for certain, and so it begins with this idea in verse 6 of Abram believed God, and then he comes back and he says, how do I know? And then God responds and says, you will know for certain. And so even underneath that is a Hebraic doubling. And here's a, here's a fun little note for you. So in Isaiah 6, what are the seraphim saying? Holy, holy, holy. Why do they say that? Because they're giving, they're making the greatest statement they can in their language. So to continue to add the same word makes it more intense. So what do we actually have here? The Lord says to Abram, know you will know. Is that's what's going on in here. And they translate it. That's why they translate it. Know for certain. You can have certainty of it. I want to also look at this word again because I want to make sure we understand that this is not just an, a flaky faith that Abram is having. Flip over while you're over there to Genesis 42. Genesis 42, 20. Genesis 42. So we're, we jump in just, a, just to make a quick point that this is Joseph while Joseph is in Egypt and his brothers have came to him. And he's trying to play a trick on them because of how they treated him in the past. He's now in power. He's the Egyptian. And they come up to him. And what does he tell them in verse 20? He says, bring your youngest brother to me. Bring Benjamin to me. He basically is trying to force them to make their word true. Bring your youngest brother to me so your word will be what? So prove your word to be true and prove it so that your word will be verified. That word verified under there is the exact same word that is ascribed to Abram in Genesis 15, that when he said he believed God. Also look over at um, Genesis 45. Just flip over a few pages. And so at the end of the Joseph story, they go back and they tell Jacob, their father, oh, Joseph's alive. And what does he say at the end of verse 26? And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. And so, my son should be dead. I am not going to believe you. We're not just talking about some airy faith. We're talking about people who cared about concrete truth at this point. So now you can flip back to Genesis 15. So if you see this, those few uses of this word, when Abram says that he believes God, he's taking his word to be true. Now, Here's the problem, though. Humanity has a belief in God problem. Why were Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden? One way you can summarize it is that they did not believe God's word. The world today tries to deal with truth that is mostly empirically verifiable. 
It's a big fancy word that says, if I don't have a scientific formula, if I can't calculate it, I'm not going to trust it. I was listening to a course this week, and it was on Intro to Psychology at the University of Yale. It's free, so if you want to go do that, I guess there's a shameless plug. And the professor was trying to make an interesting argument. He was trying to prove whether or not humans had eternal souls. He said no. Could you guess why? Can't prove it. You can't prove you have a soul. This is the type of thing we're talking about, that the world has this belief problem. They need to have evidence. They say, they look at a human brain, they say, we can basically know how this works from looking at a brain develop, and so we're not going to believe God. But God of the Bible does not play by the rules of the academy, and this is really important. And how Christians have viewed understanding is that faith is never built upon understanding. But understanding is always built upon faith. Now stop and ask yourself a question. Why do you believe? Have you ever thought about that? What is underneath your belief in God? Is it evidence or is it taking God at his word? What does Hebrews eleven six 6 say? And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must what? Believe that he exists. And then he rewards those who seek him. The logic is clear. Whoever wants to draw near to God must what? Believe him. And then understanding comes. Now this does not mean that Christians do not care about truth. And I would argue that atheism and modernism and all your big isms today really don't have a good understanding of of, of reality. And so this is one of my favorite things to talk about. I'm going to punt at this point. I'm doing a Sunday school class in September. Feel free to come. We'll talk more about this. But the world today has a belief in God problem. And God is showing the world and showing us in how he is forcing Abram to take God at his word. Believe me. The only way to get to the God of the Bible is to believe that he exists. But this also shows that faith is not ultimately a knowledge problem, is it? It's also a heart problem. Humanity is in the state of unbelief. And John 1.5 refers to the state of unbelief as darkness. And even if the most miraculous thing happened in front of people, they actually won't believe. Interestingly, I'm going to go to Luke 16 real quick. There's a story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? So the rich man and Lazarus is begging, and then they both die. The, the man who is begging Lazarus goes up to who? Abram. Hey, he pops up in the New Testament. And then while the, the rich man actually goes down to this picture of eternal torment, and here's what the text says, I beg you, Father, who's Abram, to send him, who's this man, this uh, poor man, to my father's house, where I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abram said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says to them, no, Father Abram, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear what? God's word, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. World has a belief problem. And it's not just the mind, it's the heart. So Abram believes though, but is he special? That's, I think it's an important question to ask. Is he different from everyone else? How does anyone believe? Let's go to John 1.13 real quick. But to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, 
not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, but of God. All of those who believe are those who are born of God. And in the end, from all of Scripture, we can see that the father of faith was also given the gift of faith. That God first grants in this ability to believe. Last month when I preached, I was arguing that the first sign of the covenant people was in Sarah's womb. In God giving Sarah's womb spiritual life from which Isaac would be born. But I want to edit that real quick in looking at this passage. Because the first sign is not actually in Sarah's womb. But it's out of Abram's mouth. The spiritual life would transform the world that came through Sarah. First was birthed in Abram's heart of the one who believed. The father of our true faith. From whom all the spiritual offspring would come. That's the first part. Let's go to the second part of this this verse. So summarizing it, God, well, Abram believed he had true trust in God. And it was this gift of faith to him, of faith. Let's return to the second part. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this ought to strike you as a little odd. Now, righteous or righteousness is a description. I was trying to figure out the best way to describe this. It can be a noun. It can be an adjective. But it is describing one who is acting or living in accord with God's revealed will. That's basically the idea. They're doing the right things that God requires of them. Or they're in a state of rightness. Now, but the use of rightness is quite unusual, isn't it? This isn't something that we see in most of the Old Testament. Abram believes God. And the return is a pronouncement from the throne of heaven that you are righteous. Why is this unique? Because the nation of Israel, from their own experience in the mountain, would have first learned that righteous, righteousness is given through right action. I'm going to quote from Deuteronomy 6 real quick. And this is Moses talking to the people. And the Lord commanded us to do these things, to do these statues, to fear the Lord. And he's listing some of them. To fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be what? If we obey, it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all that the Lord our God commands. So the people of Israel would have known that for them to dwell with God, they would have had to earn righteousness through righteous action. Yet at the same time, juxtaposition, Moses is telling the story of Abram who receives a righteousness by faith. I think one of the ways we understand this, let's look a little deeper at the word counted. That's how my translation does it. If you have the NIV, it is credited. Um, earlier, Cliff was reading from the NASB in Romans, and it, it rendered it reckon, I reckon. So this word can have multiple meanings, this idea of counted. And I think this is where the key for understanding this is. It can communicate a thought or perception, how I look at something. It also can communicate intent. I'm going to do something. We see this in Genesis 15, 20, whenever God comes back to the brothers and, and they're talking about what are they going to do now that their father is dead, the brothers of the, brothers of the sons of um, Jacob. So Jacob's now dead. Joseph's in charge. We're in trouble. And in Genesis 50, 20, what does the Lord say? What you meant for evil, God meant for your good. You see that, that usage there. That word meant is the same thing as considered. But this word can also carry a judicial meaning. 
from a courtroom setting. This means that the word communicates a moral evaluation of a person or of an action. The Bible teaches that all people are accountable before God for their actions. We're either going to obey God and align with his will, or we're going to disobey God and not align with his will. So then we are either righteous or unrighteous. Now you can look at this, another distinction, you can look at righteous action. So me loving my wife as God wants me to, or we're talking about the Ten Commandments in kids worship. So me obeying the Ten Commandments is righteous action. Or it can also be a state. I think it's important. The reformers really hinted on this. I can be in a state of either righteousness or unrighteousness. And as a state, God either then looks at you as righteous or unrighteous. Now this is really important, but it's also terrible news because all of us left to ourselves are in a state of unrighteousness before God. Why? Because of Adam's sin in the garden. Romans 5.18 says that when Adam sinned, in some way he was a representative of us. And then his guilt was transferred to all of us. Romans 5.18, if you want to write that down and look at that later. So the idea of being in a state of righteousness or unrighteousness gets really practical in the Bible real quick. Why? Because when you get to the nation of Israel... They're trying to dwell again with God. But big question, how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And that's an important question for us. All of us have sins in our hearts. And we are in a state, left to ourselves, important to say that, left to ourselves are in a state of unrighteousness in God's sight. So how can we dwell with a holy God? And this is first established in the nation of Israel through the sacramental system. So the only way... The only way that God established at that time for them to dwell with God was for this state of unrighteousness that they were in to be transferred to an animal. So that's, that would be the pictures of them going and placing their hands on the animals, if you're familiar with that, right? So what they're doing is that they are either corporately as a nation or individually as people transferring their state of unrighteousness to an animal, or if they commit a sin, that's going as well. So this sets up this picture that states of unrighteousness can be transferred, right? That's really important. If a man goes and commits a sin in the Old Testament, he goes to the priest, he brings his animal, he identifies with the animal. The animal receives the, the penalty for sin, which is death, and the man goes home in God's sight to re to live with God's people and to live in God's sight again. This man would be in this idea, counted righteousness, going back to Genesis 15. As one example of this, Leviticus 17, 3 through 4, this actually is a bad example of it not working. I'll read this real quick. If anyone in the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside of the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meaning, to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the temp of the tabernacle of the Lord. So that, that whole idea is that if you try and do this sacrifice, not in my presence, but if you do it in your own tent, or if you do the outside of the tent, and here's what ends up happening. Blood guilt shall be imputed. Really important word. Blood guilt shall be imputed to the man. He does not gain 
righteousness, that action makes him unrighteous. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among the people. That word imputed is that same word for considered. Now let's return to Genesis 15:6. The Lord imputes, this is weird, he imputes righteousness to Abram. Abram believes God. God sees Abram's faith. He imputes, he counts, he credits righteousness to Abram for it. Now, if you, if you know much of the Bible, this is where we get the idea of justification, as we were reading earlier in Romans 4. One is justified or declared righteous in God's sight through receiving a righteousness by faith. But connect the dots in this story. So we have faith and we have a righteousness, but it's got to come from somewhere, right? How does that righteousness get there? But this does hint at an important issue. So if Abram is going to receive these covenantal blessings, if he is going to receive a righteousness, where is all of this coming from? How can God bless this sinful man who stands before his sight? Why should God give him offspring? Why should God give him a a land to dwell in? How will he receive these blessings? It's an important thing for us to think about as well. How do, so if we believe God and he gives us a righteousness, how do we receive that righteousness? So that's back to my main idea. So in that first part, God's assurance to Abram that he will have a son lays out this foundation that Abram needs faith and righteousness, right? If you're tracking with me. But it all begs this question. Where is this righteousness coming from? And we'll see that in the second part. Let's continue going to the promise of land. In this second section, 7 through 21, it talks about God confirming that Abram's offspring will have land through covenant. So now the conversation shifts, doesn't it? It shifts over to a discussion of the land of Canaan. Abram and his family are sojourners. They are wandering around the land. Abram is concerned with whether or not they will have this inheritance. God tells Abram in verse 7 that he will give him the land. And then again in verse 8 we talked about, he says, How will I know, God, that I shall possess it? But how will he know? How will he have assurance? Verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now it might not seem like that at first, but God just raised the stakes. The scene just got intense. Why? Because God is setting up a covenant ceremony. Now, covenants in the Bible are really important. They are solemn oaths. They are contracts between people. I will do this for you if you do this in return for me. If I don't do my side of the covenant, or if you break your side of the covenant, here are the consequences. Basic idea of a covenant. The text outlines what a covenantal ceremony would look like. So you take a few animals and you cut them in half. You make this path down the middle. It's a grueling, grueling, earthly, and bloody event. Once this is set up, the two people would walk through the cut animals. What's the significance? What's going on here? 
If these two people walk through these animals, here's what they're saying. If I, I will do my side and you do your side, if you break your covenant, I will make you like these animals. And if I break my side of the covenant, I give you permission to make me like these animals. Who are the two parties? Abram and God. If God fails to uphold his side of the bargain, it will be against his character in person. But if Abram fails to uphold his side of the bargain, then Abram will die. And if Abram fails, his covenant, his descendants will not receive the covenant blessings. You actually see a picture of this go bad in Jeremiah 34. And this is where God's rebuking Israel and the sons of David. And he says, The men who transgress my covenant and do not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they have cut into and passed between the parts. They broke my covenant, God says. I'm going to make them like the animals. The covenant story begins. The text says that a dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. And God the Lord comes down with this terrifying presence. The Lord has come as a warrior king to make a covenant with Abram. Verses 13 through 16 lay out God's side of this agreement. These are the stipulations God promises to uphold. That Abram's descendants will be sojourners in a land pointing to their time in Egypt. But God will judge Egypt and then they will come back out and return to the land and get the land of Canaan. Now, usually at this point, Abram would then respond, right? We're looking at verses 13 through 16. But where is Abram? Important detail. He's sleeping. What's going on, Abram? So in verse 12, a deep sleep enters into Abram. But this does not look like a natural sleep. Why is it not? Because the same deep sleep that falls on Abram is the same deep sleep that falls on Adam whenever God took a rib out from him. And so if you just look at the significance of that event, something significant is happening to Abram right here. But it takes Abram out of the equation as a covenant partner. But in verse 17, even though Abram now should make his side of the covenant, God continues. Imagine the scene. It's dark. You have bloody animals, blood on the floor. Abram's sleeping on the ground. Then all of a sudden you see two lights in the darkness, a torch in a pot, and they pass through the animals. Then you hear a voice. To your offspring, I will give this land. What just happened? So God formed the covenant with Abram, for Abram, without Abram. God establishes this covenant by passing through the pieces without Abram. But did you notice an important detail in there? There were two pictures of God's presence, right? You have the torch in the pot. If God was representing only himself, you would expect to see only one piece or one picture of God's presence, right? Because when the torch in the pot passed through the animals, the Lord takes Abram's place and seals the covenant on Abram's behalf. Why? Imagine if Abram did walk through for a second. How long do you think he'd last upholding his side of the covenant? Seconds? Minutes? Probably. 
And because our salvation is tied to that, it wouldn't go so well, would it? Now imagine if, imagine if God appeared to you and God said, I want to form a covenant with you. Here's what I'll do for you. I want you to obey me. If you will not obey me, you will be like these animals. I would not bank on me. I wouldn't, I'm not sure I'd bank on you. Not from what the Bible says about God's requirements and our sinfulness. But instead of Abram walking through the bloody animals and sealing the covenant, God provides a representative himself. God walks through the covenant for Abram. But this doesn't answer the righteousness question, right? Where is a righteousness going to come from? How is this fair and just that God would take Abram's place? Because Abram is still a sinner. His descendants are sinners, and they will not keep his other covenants. They actually get kicked out of the land. And these other covenants do require a righteousness. This text also points to the fact that when Abram, his descendants, you and I, when we fail to uphold God's standards, when we fail to uphold God's law, when we break our oaths to God, that he will provide someone else to pay the penalty for our sin. This is what God is saying. If this covenant is broken, Abram, for whatever reason, for your unfaithfulness, for my unfaithfulness, the penalty will fall on me. If you and your descendants fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that exact moment, God announced to Abram, to the world, to you and to me, the death sentence of his son, Jesus. And this is where all the pieces come together, don't they? What did Jesus come to do? To save his people from their sins and to represent them before God. Jesus came into the world as the offspring of Abram the true Israelite, and he obeyed all of God's law. He earned life. And what does he do? Remember the cup. And this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many. Christ at the cross is where our covenant curses fall on him, and those who believe in him receive his righteousness. Christ brings together these three pictures of things that we need, faith, righteousness, and covenant representation. He represents us. He provides the righteousness that Abram needs, the righteousness that you and I need to receive the blessings of God. And they are offered and applied to him and to me and to you by faith. Here's the beauty of this passage. God makes an extraordinary promise to Abram. You will be a nation. You will be a blessing. You will have land. And then he delays. Why? To show Abram and to show us that only those who believe in his son will receive the covenantal work of his son. God in this passage lays out the gospel for us and for Abram. I'm sitting on this a little bit. I'm still trying to figure out what it means. But it's ironic, isn't it, that Abram asks for a son and offspring, yet Abram's offspring, Jesus, is the means somehow of Abram receiving the covenant blessings. What does he want? Give me a son. 
and the Son is the one that will save him. Friends, if you're here today, Christ has revealed himself as God to you through this word. He came to live the life that you could not live, and he died the death that you deserved, so that you will have the blessings and promises of God. You, we all need a righteousness, and he has given us his son. How do you receive these blessings? Many of us know this. It's when we look to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I have sinned. I need you as my covenant representative. I know I'm not worthy in, my, in your sight, and I know that I would not stand one second if the covenant rested upon me. So I need you to save me. Look to Christ if you haven't. Accept these things as true. A few closing thoughts for us. When we look at the Bible's picture, our salvation isn't based upon us, is it? We might be called to believe. We are called to grow in holiness, but from start to finish, it is accomplished by a God who binds himself to covenant promises and blessings at his own expense for our eternal award. What ought this to do? Ought to foster a deep sense of humility. For you are saved solely by God's grace. It also might to have well up within you a deep sense of awe that the eternal God of the universe would be mindful of you and go to such an extent to save you at his own expense. What's the only proper response? It's worship. It is worship. Now, something else for us to think about. If you're in a situation where you find yourself doubting God because of a conflict between his word and his circumstances, I want you to think about Abram's story. You might have a hard time thinking about your life because of a diagnosis or a broken relationship or something that you're struggling with. But what does this passage show us? We're in great company. God's people are those who wait on the Lord. And it is how he works redemptively. And he helps us to loosen our grip on the world and become more dependent upon him. When we come face to face with the God of the Bible, silence, waiting, and trusting him by faith are not signs of God's absence, but of God's presence. God's people are people of faith through trials, who are called to live by faith in his promises that come to us in Christ. Maybe you're someone struggling with the idea of how God can accept you. You have too much of a troubled past, maybe, or you've done something that you don't know if, if, God, if God can forgive you because you can't forgive yourself. How can God accept you? What does the story say? That God's acceptance of you is not based upon anything you've done, but everything that Christ has done. Because you contribute as much to your salvation as Abram contributed to this covenant. Nothing. He was sleeping. And yet, from the heavenly throne room, if you believe in Jesus, you get the pronouncement, righteous. And the guilt of your sin is removed as far as from the east as from the west. Friends, because of what Christ has done, every time that you fail, you have access to God, to come to him again, in repentance and faith, and to keep going. But the good thing about faith, though, its days are numbered. We are called to be a people who are marked by faith, waiting for Christ to return. Even as we live by faith, God has given us assurances that we can trust him, that he will be faithful to his promises, and that every moment that a Judean tomb remains empty, we know that God will ultimately keep his promises. And we are those who look to Christ in faith, knowing that it's only a matter of time before that faith becomes sight. Let us pray.